So to avoid any misinterpretation, it's imperative that we take our time and clearly read the passage that we're studying. So with that in mind, I want you to grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Daniel chapter 8. And we're going to continue to study what we looked at last time, we're starting to look at, and that was the vision that Daniel was given by God of a ram and a goat. And in Daniel chapter 8, we're going to take a look at the entire chapter. And we're going to see what God has to say in this particular chapter about events that were in the future as far as Daniel was concerned. And we begin with verse 1 and we read these words. It says, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. It says, And I looked in the vision and and it came about while I was looking that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I, I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. It says, Then I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in the front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. It says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased, and he magnified himself. Now while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and he rushed at him in his mighty wrath. It says, And I saw him, and when I saw him, he became come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and he trampled on him and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. It says, And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth. And it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. It says, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? It says, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And it came about when I, Daniel, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me, was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of the man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. It says, The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia, and the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. 
It says, And the broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. It says, In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue, and his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will, not, but he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and mornings which has been told is true, but keep the vision a secret, for it pertains to many days in the future." Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it to me. The last time that we were together, I mentioned that there are five areas of this passage that we'll examine. So far, we've taken a look at two of them in our last time together. The first thing was seen in verses 1 and 2, and that was the importance of the place of the vision, the place and the time. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one I had already appeared to me. And in my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. Since all of Scripture is inspired by God, it's important for us to realize that all Scripture is recorded for a purpose. God doesn't need to fill in the blanks or to fill in the text because the teacher has assigned a 15-page essay and there's a whole bunch of filler and there's only a certain amount of pertinent information. When we look at the Word of God, the Bible clearly says that all Scripture is inspired by God and all of it is profitable for instruction. Every word that we see, every phrase that's given to us is given to us for a purpose and a reason to help instruct us as to the things of God. We recognize as we go through this that the year is very important because at the time that Daniel was given this vision, the province, I mean the kingdom of Persia has not yet come into existence. Existence. It would be eight more years even though through our study of the book of Daniel we've already seen in Daniel chapter 5 that Persia has already taken over for Babylon. The reality is, is that we have a flashback here that goes to the time preceding that and we see what's taking place is, is that in the third year of Belshazzar's reign we know that it's eight more years. We've already learned that. We've been instructed... It'll be another eight years before Babylon falls to the Medes and the Persians. So as Daniel is given this vision of a, of a time and a place, it's a time and a place that's in his future, although as we look back on it, we can see historically that it's already occurred. So the time and the place is very important. It says that he's in the capital city of Susa. Susa would not become a capital until it became a capital of the Persian Empire, and the city would not be a capital city. A magnificent city, as it turned out, would not be built there for another 100 years subsequent to the date that we see here as far as Daniel is concerned. So everything that we see here is given to us for a purpose and a reason. And as we look back, we can make no mistake about it, it was in the third year, so what Daniel is seeing, a vision from God, is given to him of a time and a place that's yet to come. You know, it's hard for us in hindsight as we look back and see these things to recognize the significance of it. And I was trying to think of, you know, in my own twisted, demented way of how I like to try to grasp God's truth. I was thinking it would kind of be like, you know, we had the Baseball World Series that just ended about a week ago, and it would be kind of like Abraham Lincoln sitting down at one date in, in the past, and he writes that, you know, in the year 1998... You know, a hundred years from his existence or his time and place on this earth, a hundred years later, the New York Yankees would play the San Diego Padres and the Yankees would sweep them in four and Scott Brocious would be the MVP. 
And, uh, you know, no one ever heard of baseball. No one ever heard of San Diego. No one ever heard of even the city of New York at that particular time as far as the essence of it. Certainly no one ever heard of George, George Steinbrenner or they would have stood up and stopped it. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but the point that I'm trying to make is this, that 100% of everything that God said would happen happened exactly as God said that it would at a date 100 years into the future, and as we'll see going through the text, even up to 400 years and greater, everything happened exactly as God said that it would. And I'm trying to help us to understand how incredibly, uh, uh, what an incredible miracle that is, because we sit in hindsight looking and go, what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. And it's one of the reasons that we can rely upon the Word of God. You know, we have many people in our culture today that like to make predictions about the future. We hear of psychics that claim to know the future. We hear stories uh, that are expanded upon as far as, you know, women like uh, the woman like Jean Dixon and, and, and uh, the stories that are told on TV of Notre Dame and all these predictions that he made. But you know what's really fascinating about that is, as fascinated as the world is about their seemingly, uh, some of their predictions coming true, every one of them have at least proven to be wrong in many cases. But we camp on the one or two things and we go, oh, that's amazing. That's not amazing. I mentioned to you last time that if you were to predict the future, if a prophet said they were speaking of God, they would predict the future and it didn't come to pass exactly as they said. God's remedy for them was what? Kill them. Stone them to death. Get them off the face of the earth because they're misleading people. How do we know that something is from, the, from God himself? Because when God says it, it happens exactly as he says in, in the most intimate of detail. If God's Word says that this is what's going to take place, you can bank on the fact that God's Word is 100% reliable, it's accurate, it's credible, and it's trustworthy. That's why, why, why in the world would anyone turn to anywhere else for so, a source of information than to the Word of God? We say, that's remarkable that God... You know, it's not remarkable that God could do that. Think about it. God is perfect. God knows all things. God is outside the dimension of time. In fact, God created time. There's nothing that's too difficult for God. So for God to give us the most intimate of details and prophecy isn't that hard for God to do. And what we need to recognize is fulfilled prophecy should drop us on our knees at how incredibly awesome God is and say, Lord, I don't know anything. You obviously know everything, and I'm just turning to you from now on for everything I need to know about life. The Bible says if any man lacks wisdom, and he's not saying if, if that's the case, maybe or maybe it isn't. He's saying if and since it's so. Since it's so that you lack wisdom, let him turn to God who gives generously and above reproach. He won't make fun of us or ridicule us because we don't know. He knows we don't know. And the fact he knows we don't know is why he gives us what we have so that we will know. He wants us to know. He doesn't want us to be ignorant and uninformed. He doesn't want us to be in the darkness like everyone in the world is who has no hope. God wants His people to have hope and to know that He's in control of all things and His Word is trustworthy and to rely upon it 100%. On Him and Him alone. As we look at this, it's very important that we recognize what time and place takes place. The second thing that we began to see in verses 3 through 8 was the identity of a conflict. And the conflict, as we see, was between a ram and between a goat. The prominence of the ram was called out as we take a look at this. He said, I stood and before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. The horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other but grew up later. I watched as the ram charged to the west, to the north, to the south, and no animal could stand against it. The prominence of the ram, we know that the ram is identified for us in verse uh, 20, 20 as that of the Medes and the Persians. It's the empire of Media and Persia. We don't have to guess. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to share one another's opinion. You know what I love about the Word of God? And I want you to listen to me very carefully. We live in a day and age 
where we don't like to be told when we're wrong. Nobody's wrong. Everyone's opinion is equally valid. Your opinion is as valid as the next person's opinion, even if both of your opinions are 180 degrees apart. Nobody's wrong. You know what I love about the Word of God? All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? For, incre- for instruction, reproof, rebuke, meaning what? God actually says, Chuck, you're wrong. But that's okay because I am going to now correct you in your thinking and in your behavior. The Word of God tells us when we're wrong and then corrects our wrong attitudes, our wrong thoughts, our wrong behavior. It says what you're doing is wrong, now straighten up and do what's right. I love God's Word. I love Jesus Christ because He did not hesitate when the disciples were wrong, turning around to Him and saying, you know what? You're wrong. You're wrong about what you think. You're wrong about what you think is going to happen. You're wrong in what you're doing. Don't suffer the children to come unto me. What are you doing? What you're doing is wrong. Let them come to me. He, he rebuked them. He told Peter, he said, get behind me, Satan. What are you doing? You got your mind focused on, on man and not on God. He didn't hesitate to rebuke them. He didn't hesitate to correct them. But we live in this politically correct environment where if we can just get people to church, the last thing we want people to do is to think that they're wrong about anything. Hey, they're coming because they know they're wrong. It's just a big bluffing game. They don't want anybody else to know, but they know in their heart they're wrong and they're looking for answers. They're looking for direction. They're looking for hope. They're looking for absolutes. They want to know whether something is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. And if they're doing what's wrong and it's leading to consequences in their life, and we can help identify that and say, confess that or agree with God what you're doing is wrong, and now repent and turn from it and be corrected by God's action, guess what will happen? Their life will be radically changed. But we all walk around very carefully, gingerly, like we're walking on eggshells. Oh, we don't want to tell anybody we're wrong. First Bible study I ever went to, everyone's sitting around in a group, and they're all talking, saying, what did you think that meant? Oh, I think it means this. What did you think that meant? Oh, I think it means that. It's exactly the opposite. The guy's sitting there going like this. Oh, great answers, great answers. Great answers? He goes, what did you think? I said, I don't know what I think. I don't even, I've never read the Bible. What do I, who cares what I think? I don't know anything. Well, what are we going to do with you? I got an idea. Teach me instruct me, teach me something, I don't know anything. Oh, never had one of you in here before. (laughs) So I'm absolutely convinced, you know what, we're here to teach, we're here to instruct, that's what the Word of God does, It, it instructs us, it rebukes us when we're wrong, if what you're thinking is wrong, you come in here thinking that you know something about this text or this passage, and we'll read it and study it, and if you're wrong, you're wrong, and now you can correct it, and you can move on, and you have a better relationship with God because of it. So anyway, that felt good. I know it's early for some of you, but hey. Okay, so he came towards the two-horned ram. Who is he? He is the goat. We know that the goat is the empire of Greece. Uh, We know that he happens to be Alexander the Great because it's identified for us. So it says that, and and, and we'll throw that in there. And Alexander came towards the two-horned ram, or the Medes and the Persians. I had seen him standing besides the canal, and he charged at him in great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously. So he sees Greek attack the the Medes and the Persians, specifically the Persians, because the Persians had come up and took over the Medes. They were then assimilated into that particular kingdom. So now we've got the kingdom of Persia. The Greek empire comes up and goes against the Persians. He says, striking the ram, shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat knocked him to the ground. We see the power of the goat trampled on him. None could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great. So we see, you know, the power of the goat. We saw the prominence of the ram. And then we also see this, and that is the punishment of the goat or the punishment of Alexander the Great. 
the most fascinating thing about all of this is that the Bible clearly says that when the horn became great or when Alexander reached his height or his pinnacle of success as far as the world is concerned, at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. We know from history that Alexander the Great basically drank himself to death, died of alcohol-related poisoning as he sat on the banks of the Euphrates, frustrated that he had no more kingdoms to conquer. The Bible says, for the, uh, history tells us for the next several years, all of his generals, 20 of them, fought to try to take over the kingdom. And out of that struggle or skirmish, four men arose. And those are the four men that we see here that are mentioned. And it's important that we recognize and understand what's going on here. Because it is significant as to the rest of the understanding of this particular prophecy, what has taken place. So remember my warning. It's very important that we actually read the passage. Because it's amazing when you read the Bible, how much more clarity there is than just speculating on what it might say. It's fascinating how that is. It's just a simple thought, but I thought I'd throw it out to you. You know, because it's funny, because you hear people all the time and say, well, you know, you know I don't believe the Bible. What part? Well, I don't know. Well, do you read it? Well, no, I never read it. All right. We're going to have an intelligent conversation. So here it is. Number three. The third out of the five things that we're going to look at in Daniel chapter 8. Look at verses 9 through 11. In Daniel chapter 8, 9 through 11, we read these words. It says, now, it's important. Listen up. Pay attention. It says, and out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. And it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall down to the earth, and it trampled them down. It says, and it even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression... The host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. In order to avoid any confusion, we must be careful to read this particular passage because if you'll recall in our study of Daniel chapter 7, turn back with me for a second. In Daniel chapter 7, we were introduced in verse 8 of Daniel 7 to another little horn who appears to come out of nowhere also to become great. So that little horn is this future coming world ruler or leader which we talked about uh, several weeks ago. The question that we have to ask ourselves is this. Is that little horn or future leader of Daniel 7 the same little horn or leader of chapter 8? It's really important that we clarify that because if you do not have that clear, then you will misinterpret everything that God has for us. So what's the difference between chapter 7, verse 8, and chapter 8, verse 9? In chapter 7, verse 8, that little horn, or world leader, coming world leader, comes from the fourth kingdom. If you recall, there are four world empires. There was the Babylonians, there was the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and then there would be the coming empire of Rome. This particular passage in chapter 7 deals with the fourth empire or kingdom, and that of Rome. 
So we know that that particular world leader will come from the Roman Empire. We also know from the passage that it's going to come from a revised, a, re, a resurrection, so to speak, or a revived Roman Empire because the Roman Empire never was conquered and never, in essence, died. The Bible says in the book of Revelations that the head that had been injured or looked like it was fatally wounded did not die, but it was revived, and it's revived here to the point where now what we have is a ten-nation coalition of, of nations that will gather together, form an economic European community or an economic bloc of some sort in Europe, and out of those ten nations... An eleventh nation came up, or an eleventh ruler, who then were told in chapter seven, verse eight, plucked up three of those of, of those countries and took over himself. So we know that that event is even yet to come in our future, and it has not been fulfilled. Now the question you got to ask yourself is: He the same person that God is identifying now in chapter eight, verse nine? And it is very clear to see what God is saying if we just read the passage. Notice what He says. Remember what he's talking about here. He's saying that the Greek Empire, in, in the, verse 8, remember the Greek Empire headed by Alexander the Great. Alexander would be broken off. He would no longer be the, the head. He would be, he, he was gone now. Out of his place would come four generals or four leaders. Those four kings would be Lysimachus, Cassander, um, Seleucus, and, uh, and Ptolemy. And those four leaders, thank you very much, and you know, we'll work on that yourself. Uh, but uh, those four leaders would be the, the leaders who would, would be the new leaders of the divided Greek empire. And notice what the Bible says, they would come up in power, but they would never be as great or powerful as Alexander the Great, because there was division in the land. Now, notice in verse 9, look, and out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great. Out of one of whom? Out of one of the four. So we know that this leader that we're now about to be introduced to is not the same leader, coming world leader, that God is referring to in Daniel chapter 7. Because that leader comes out of the revived Roman Empire. This leader is going to come historically out of one of those four generals. And one of those four generals, then there would have, he would have a descendant who is now who God wants to identify for our purposes in understanding the prophecy. And so as we look at this, out of one of them came a little horn. Who is he? The Bible says that he would be known by his fruit or by his actions. His actions would identify who this person is. And let me just give you a little tidbit of advice. We are always known by our actions and not by our words. The Bible always says that we are to examine the fruits of one's life as opposed to merely the lips that one the, the, the lip service that one may give. Every one of us know how easy it is to tell people what we think they want to hear, and it is not a reflection of who we truly are. Every marriage conference and seminar I've ever done, the basic struggle is this. We all know how to play the game with each other and tell each other what we want to hear, but it's only by the evidence of our actions that we really can tell where a person's heart truly is. The Bible says this, that we are to examine one another by the evidence of our actions. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, when he would come, would be able, he would do certain things. And it's by his actions that those around were to examine to see whether he, was, whether he truly was the Messiah of the world. If you recall, when John the Baptist was in prison, 
he had sent his disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one God had promised or should he be looking for another savior. What was the response that he gave to his disciples to give to John the Baptist? He said, you go back and you tell John that the blind can see, that the lame can walk. And he went on and identified what Messiah would do when he would come. Jesus Christ fulfilled the prophecies of God. And if they would have truly just examined what he was doing, they would have known he was who he claimed to be. Jesus often said, he said, what's the easier thing to say? That your sins are forgiven? That's easy. Anybody can say your sins are forgiven. What's easier, that or telling this guy who's never walked to take up his pallet and get up and walk? And they all said, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. Exactly. And to, and to prove and to demonstrate that Christ had the forgiveness, uh, the power to forgive sins. He said to that man, take up your pallet. And they walked. And he stood up and he walked. And yet the people still didn't use the evidence that God's given to, to soften their hearts to believe in Jesus Christ. The reason I bring that up is this. The evidence of who this man is going to be will be so obvious to everybody involved that the Word of God is correct in telling them and warning them of this coming leader who would be basically a madman, as we shall see. It's time for a quick history lesson. It is agreed by every biblical scholar that I've looked at that this man who God is predicting would come is a descendant of Seleucus. His name is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy that we find in Daniel chapter 8, specifically starting with verse 9. It says that he started out small and he became great. Antiochus Epiphanes was held in Rome as a a hostage for 14 years until his his, uh, cousin came and replaced him. They would, they would take hostages and say, well, somebody else will take your place, we'll let you go. His cousin came, Demetrius took his place, they let him go. He went to Athens, and sur- shortly after his time in Athens, he became a chief magistrate. He wasn't content on being a chief magistrate, he wanted to be king. And the Bible says that he then ended up, through some manipulation of his own, having the king at the time, there was the king at that time, murdered, and, uh, and then he took his place. It's fascinating. In, in 175 B.C., his brother Seleucus IV was murdered, having had that arranged by himself. And uh, he went on to become uh, the, the king of, uh, as he went through, Antiochus made himself the king. What's interesting about this is, is that the Bible predicts that this man would start out insignificant or small, meaning that he was not in line to be king, but somehow this small person would become exceedingly great. Notice what also the Bible says. It says that out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. What's fascinating about history is this. We know the first thing that Antiochus did was he took his armies and marched into Egypt and he fought against Ptolemy. He defeated Ptolemy. He went, from, uh, he went to, into Memphis, which was not Tennessee. He went beyond Memphis, and then he went into Alexandria, and he basically set up two kings that would be there who would be kind of his, his uh, dummy state, so to speak, where he took two brothers, made one king of Alexandria, made the other king of Memphis. They hated each other, and he knew that he could trust that no, no one was going to ever get together and try to rebel against him because they were always fighting against themselves. So he left Egypt. The Bible says that then he went toward the east, which he did. Exactly. He fought the Parthenians. When he, was in, when he was there fighting the Parthenians, there was an uprising up, uh, in Egypt. He goes back to Egypt, and while he was in Egypt, he was going to conquer them once again and just take over completely. And yet, a vassal from Rome was there, and they said, Look, you know what, Antiochus? You're not going to come down here and take over Egypt. And in fact, what they did was, he stood in a circle, and the guy from Rome went up to him and drew a circle around him in the sand and said, you are not leaving the circle until you make a commitment that you are no longer going to attack Egypt. And out of frustration, as you can imagine, and he had been in Rome for 14 years, so he knew what Rome could do to him. He didn't have any choice but to compromise, and he said, okay, I'll leave these people go. But he realized that between Egypt and Syria, 
fell Palestine at that time. And he needed Palestine to be a buffer state in case Egypt ever had an uprising where they would come to try to conquer him. So he had to take over and he went into Palestine. Now what's fascinating about this whole thing is as he goes into Palestine, he becomes enraged because he was embarrassed in Egypt. He marches in with 22,000 soldiers and he says, basically, I come peacefully. You don't have anything to worry about. So Antiochus comes, he sets up camp in Palestine, and, uh, but the Jews aren't receptive to him. He sends the soldiers out to find out what's going on. To me. I came in peace, I haven't caused any problems. And, he, and uh, his soldiers came back and said, well, these people, they have a temple. And in that temple, they make sacrifices. And the sacrifices they're making are to their God. Their allegiance is first and foremost to their God. And Antiochus said, well, what kind of sacrifices? He said, well, is there any Greek statues there? And he was sold on the Hellenization of all of the colonies because it was a Greek culture, political state, it was Greek religion, and all the rest of it. And it was almost similar to what we've been learning as far as Nebuchadnezzar was concerned in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. What was the first thing that they tried to do to the captives as they brought them into Babylon? They were to teach them to think as Babylonians. They were going to change their language, they were going to change their customs, they were going to change their diet, they were going to change their religion. This is the exact same thing that Antiochus wanted to do. He said, well, wait a minute. There's no Greek statues in the temple? He said, I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to make a statue resembling me of gold. And you're going to take that statue and you're going to put it into the temple. And you're going to call it Zeus Olympius. And they are going to worship that statue because that statue represents me. So they make the statue. They take it into the temple. They tear the veil of the Holy of Holies where only the, holy, only the high priest could go once a year to offer sacrifices for the sin of the people. They tear the veil. They take in this, this uh, statue into the temple. And then they say, now I say, you're going to start making sacrifices to this particular statue. That is called the abomination of the desolation. It was an abomination before God that any other false god would be brought into the temple of God and that they would be even anyone would even suggest or intimate for a second that they were going to make sacrifices to the statue. Notice the similarities between what we've already learned as far as uh, Babylon was concerned. The great image that Nebuchadnezzar made. Everyone at the sound of the trumpet is going to worship this particular image. You know what? That's what's happening. False gods or false religions always try to draw, draw our worship and allegiance away from God to whatever it is the program that man sets up. So this is what happens. So they go in and say, okay, now you're going to start sacrificing to this particular statue. So they go into the place. They take the statue and the high priest says, you can't do this. And they say, oh, really? Watch this. They killed him. The other priests come running into the temple and say, what are you doing? You can't do this. They said, oh, really? Watch this. They killed all of them. Then mothers around the, started, well, look what they're doing. And all these women start running in there going, you can't do this. That's not fair. You know how mothers are. That's not right. And Antiochus said, oh, that's right. That's right. That's, you gave me a good idea. So he went out and rounded up a thousand children. And he took them into the temple and he killed them. And the blood was sprinkled all throughout the temple. And then on top of all of it, the greatest abomination of everything that he had done, he brought, a, he brought pigs into the temple and he slaughtered the pigs. And he made, a altar, he made an altar, the sacrifice to Zeus, Olympias, and they began to slaughter pigs in the temple of God, the sanctuary of God. And the blood of pigs and the blood of human beings were mixed all throughout the, that temple. And to make sure that nobody misunderstood what was going on, he sent his generals all the way through Palestine. And as they went into Palestine, they would, they would take and they would get the priests of a particular area. And they'd say, hey, there's a new sheriff in town and here's what we're going to be doing from now on. And they would set up an altar. And they said, you know what? You're not going to worship your God anymore. You're going to worship Zeus Olympias. You're going to worship Greece, basically. And you're going to honor Greece. And uh, they would call the priest out from among the people. They'd have a town rally. They'd bring them all up. And they'd have this altar set up in, in the middle of town. And they'd say, okay. They'd call the, the priest up and say, okay, now you, in front of everyone here, are going to sacrifice a pig on this altar to the God of Greece. 
And many of the priests did it. They buckled under. They compromised. There was one particular priest that they came across. His name was Mattathias. Mattathias was in a local town. They brought him up and said, you're going to do the same thing that everybody else is doing. You're going to conform or else. So they brought him up. He came up to the altar. And, uh, 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 Apollos, who was the, the general at that particular time, was standing there with him. Here's Mattathias standing right here. Here's the altar. Here's the pig. Mattathias pulled out his knife, went like this, and went, yeah, right into the chest of the general. Killed him on the spot. Mattathias has five sons. They're all in the crowd. They see what's going on. They immediately grab their weapons. They grab their knives. And they immediately begin to slaughter all of the soldiers that were sent. And that began the Maccabean Revolution. Or the Maccabean Revolt. One of those sons, Judas Maccabeus, was the one who was the leader of the revolt. And gets most of the credit for the, for the overthrow of Antiochus Epiphanes. But the point of all of this, and we look at this, is there's some application here that I don't want you to miss. The first point is this. There are some things in life that are worth fighting for. Religious freedom is something that we can never take for granted and it is worth fighting for. We need to recognize and understand that Scripture is very clear. Romans 13 and throughout, God talks about how we should honor authority, that all authority is established by God. And that there's a process and there's a structure. There's authority in the home, there's authority in the workplace, there's authority in society, that we should honor that. But the Bible is equally clear that there's a point in time where there must be a line that's drawn. And the line that's drawn is clear throughout Scripture. And that line is simply this. When any human authority tells us or tries to tell us that we can no longer worship our God, that we no longer have the freedom to worship God, that we no longer have the freedom to obey the commandments of God, that we no longer have the freedom to talk about our God and to share what our God has done and the forgiveness and the love that we find in Jesus Christ. When we are told by authority that we cannot do that any longer, the Bible is very clear in Acts chapter 5, we are to obey God at that point rather than man. There are things in life that are worth fighting for and we cannot let a culture that is slowly going to hell dupe us into believing that we don't have any right to try to profess or to proclaim the God that we believe in. There's a point where we have to draw the line. And what's sad about that is, and as we take a look at this from history, think about the illustration of David and Goliath, for example. David and Goliath. What was the first thing? Here's this little shepherd boy comes onto the scene. Here's these great armies. They're facing this, 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 this Goliath who is a champion of the Philistines. And uh, basically he comes onto the scene and he goes, what, what's going on here? Who is this that profanes our God? And why isn't there anybody here doing anything about it? The reproach of Israel, Goliath called out the Israelites made a mockery of their God, a mockery of the people of God, and it took a little shepherd boy to step up and say, what are you guys doing? Who's that compared to our God? I'll fight him. And they laughed at him. They gave him this big old heavy armor. He couldn't even wear it. He goes, nah, I can't even wear this stuff. He started clinking around and he was falling over and said, never mind, I'll just grab my slingshot and I got five pebbles. And people go, five pebbles? Why did he get five? Didn't he have any faith that the first one would hit? He said, no, there were five champions. He figured, I'll take the first one out and I'm going to get the rest of them too. They're stupid enough to come after me after I drop the big guy. They're all going down. <laughs> What's fascinating about that is this. You know what? He said, And here's what he said. He said, hey, today... Our God will deliver us. Here's our problem today. We don't have enough people of God who step into the gap and say, you know what? I'm not afraid 
Because today, if God's people would step out in boldness and proclaim the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into light, if God's people were heard, guess what? We could stand boldly and say, today, our God will deliver us. Today, our God will deliver us from the hands of godless people who want to take this nation in a direction that it doesn't need to go. But we have a choice. And the choice, as Dave mentioned, was that we all stand around in apathy and think there's nothing we can do about it. There's a lot that we can do about it. And there's a lot that God wants us to do about it. And thank God Judas Maccabeus Maccabeus and and, uh, Mattathias' father didn't step back and just say, well, there's nothing we can do said, well, you know what? We may go down, but I'm going down doing something. I'm going down doing something. If I'm going down, I'm going down pleasing to God. And that's exactly what David did as he conquered Goliath or went to Goliath. It's fascinating as we look at all this. You know, Antiochus Epiphanes took upon himself the name Antiochus Theos Epiphanes, meaning this, that God who has made himself manifest. Can you imagine the man minted coins with his inscription or likeness on the coin and the inscription that was Antiochus Epiphanes, Theos Epiphanes, God who has made himself manifest. You know what that means? God in human flesh. In John chapter 1, we're told, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And the Bible goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That Jesus Christ is God manifest. God in human flesh. It's interesting, the Jews, because of just one little letter change from Epiphanes, meaning manifest, to Epimenes, means madman. The Jews said, the guy is, hey, Antiochus Epimenes. The dude's a madman. He's a nutcase. He thinks he's God in human flesh. This guy's an idiot. We look at this and you see what happens. Antiochus Epiphanes called the madman. Here was the madman in the third year of Belshazzar. We're introduced to this particular madman. The Bible says, how long will this particular madman last? Think about all the things that he did. It's fascinating as we go through this, and we'll take a look in a second. But it says that, and this is going to last for 2,300 days. 2,300 days. What's fascinating about all of this is 2,300 days come out to six years, three months, and 20 days. After three years of constant fighting, the Bible tells us, because of the Maccabean Revolution, that at the end of that period of time, the Jews were able to go back into the temple, and they were able to worship God once again. That's what's the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Dedication or what the Jews call Hanukkah. And basically Hanukkah is an eight-day celebration where everybody in the village, everybody in the city, everybody in the country took candles and they lit them because it was a time of rededication and a time of cleansing the temple from this madman lunatic who went in there and offered sacrifices of pigs to a false god. The Bible says in in great detail, 2,300 days. We know historically, looking back, it took place exactly as God said. From the moment Ananias was killed, the high priest in the temple by Antiochus, to the moment that they went in and reclaimed the temple for God, was exactly as the Bible said, 2,300 days. It's fascinating. It's awesome. God's Word is incredible. And when we look at the history of it, it's a fascinating thing. Now, let's go through it, and we can understand it a lot, a lot easier as we read through. So Daniel chapter 8, let's go through and see what happens. 
which is the fourth thing that we'll look at. And that's the intent of the vision. The intent of the vision basically is to give clarity, to give understanding. We need to recognize that that's always the case. The intent is always to give clarity. God wants us to know what's going on. It says, And it came about when I, Daniel, verse 15, had seen the vision that I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. Now, one who looked like a man was an angel. And the reason he looked like a man is because you can't see angels unless they appear as men. Because angels are light, you can't see them. If you ever, and you should know that by watching Touched by an Angel. Um, <laughs> No, seriously, no. But, you know, they try to do it, and they do a pretty decent job. But the bottom line is this. I mean, you cannot see an angel because an angel is translucent, an angel is light as it appears according to the Bible. You can't see an angel unless an angel takes on the appearance of a man. All right? So there we got Gabriel mentioned for the first time in the Bible, appears before Daniel. God tells him to give this man an understanding of the vision. And that's basically the bottom line of prophecy is that God wants us to understand. Period. It says, so he came near to where I was standing, and when I came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. All right? Important phrase. Now while, I was talk- while, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deeper sleep with my face to the ground. You know, I think about that every time that I'm standing up here. Now while I was talking, they sank into a deep sleep with their faces to the ground. Um, <laughs> But I like what he did. He went and touched them. So I'm thinking, hey, here's an application. The next time I see somebody dozing off, I'll just come. Yeah, or I just may ask you, the person next to him, just go give him a good old rap or a good shot. And it's like, and then you know what happened? And then I'm going to make you stand upright. I, I like that. Because then, guess what? Then you pay attention. That's a good, that's a good deal. I like that. So Daniel fell asleep. The angel touched him. Gabriel said, get up, stand upright. And that's what he did. Okay. Now he begins to explain or interpret the vision. And we'll close on this. Says the rams which you saw with the two horns represent the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that's between his eyes is the first king, which we know is Alexander the Great. The broken horn, Alexander the Great, and the four horns that arose in its place, four kingdoms, four generals that took his place, represent those four kingdoms, which will arise from his nation, notice, and they will not have the same power. They just will not be as powerful, and it's the time of the end of the Greek Empire, and the Romans are about to take the scene. It says, listen, now in the latter period of their rule, who? In the latter period of the rule of those four generals, when the transgressors have run their course, notice, a king will arise, Antiochus Epiphanes IV, insolent and skilled in intrigue. Insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, notice that, but not by his own power, and I don't want you to miss that. God is absolutely 100% in control of everything. This man did not arise and become powerful without God allowing it for his purposes and for whatever reasons there are that God has in doing what he does. The bottom line is that God is in control. And we need never to fear the fact that what's going on around us is not a reflection of the control of God. Even today, in the mess that we're in as a nation, God is in control, and there's a purpose and a reason. But on the other hand, we are to step forth and stand in the gap, and we're to take a stand for God and godly things. And that's the balance that we have here. But God is in control. He would be given power or might. Antiochus, God used Antiochus Epiphanes to complete his discipline of the nation of Israel. And we must never forget that God disciplines those who rebel against him. God continued to warn the nation of Israel not to rebel against his word. He said, if you rebel against my word, there will be consequences. And God often uses people in our life to bring about that discipline. God used Nebuchadnezzar. God used Assyria. God used Antiochus Epiphanes to discipline his people and bring about what God was wanting 
to bring about, and that was the repentance of his people who would then turn to God and confess their sins, repent and turn back to him, and begin to do what's right before God. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. There's never been a massacre of the Jewish people up until that time in the history of the world. What he did was absolutely incredible. He will destroy mighty men and holy people. Mattathias died a year after the revolution started. Judas Maccabeus died three years into the battle. There were many people, many of God's people who stood up in the gap and they died because of it. Holy men who shed their blood for the fight for religious freedom so that one day God's people could reclaim the temple as it rightfully belonged to God to offer sacrifices. He will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. He will magnify himself in his heart. He will destroy many while they are at ease. He came under the pretense of peace. Don't worry, I'll come in peace. And then he began to destroy them when they let their guard down. We can never negotiate with the enemy. You can never negotiate with the devil. Evil is never content to remain within a confined parameters. Evil always wants to destroy. That's the purpose of evil. That's exactly what it wants to do. He went in and said, don't worry about me. You have nothing to worry about. They said, oh, okay, then we won't. And then he stepped up and he destroyed them in their ignorance and in their apathy. It goes on and says, he will even oppose the prince of princes. Isn't that fascinating? As he minted those coins with the likeness of himself, calling himself God manifest, he opposed Jesus Christ himself, God in human flesh. I'm God. He's not. But he will be broken without human agency. You know, it's fascinating. History tells us that Antiochus Epiphanes was not killed in battle. But he died because of a disease that he had. Many speculate that the disease became a matter of insanity. And it could have been a result of syphilis or some sexual immorality. But God destroyed him without human hands. The judgment of God came upon Antiochus Epiphanes. It's a wonderful story as you look and see what God does. But the bottom line of this is this. There's a lot of confusion as to, but gee, he sounds a lot like the coming world leader. He sounds a lot like what we've already studied as far as the Antichrist is concerned. He will do the same thing. It'll be almost a mere image. He is a type of this leader that's to come. And I believe that God will use his word as he often does. He will use his word in the time of the great tribulation where God's people will search the scripture and he'll recognize that, you know what? Antiochus Epiphanes IV was but a precursor of this great world leader that we now have before us who comes and says to Israel, peace, I'll give you peace. You want peace? We'll negotiate peace. And for three and a half years, there There'll be peace. And then there'll be what? An abomination of the desolation as he desecrates the temple and he sits on the throne of God and he wants to be worshipped by man and says, I'm the one that's in charge. You worship me. And if you try to worship your God and you don't take the mark of the beast, that you will be murdered and you will be killed. You'll be put in the position to decide. Choose for this day. This day you choose whom you're going to serve. Are you going to serve me or are you going to serve your God? If you choose to serve your God, I will have you killed. And that's the choice that man has been having to make from the beginning of time, isn't it? We are very fortunate in our culture. We have never been put to that position. But there's a time coming and there's a day that's coming on the horizon where God's people will be persecuted in this country because you can see the signs coming. You know, you can believe anything. You can promote anything except for Christianity. You can talk about anything you believe and why you believe it. But if you talk about Jesus Christ, man, I'll tell you what, the crowds will want to shut you up. And there's a reason for it, because Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no man that comes unto the Father but by Him. It, it's, it, it's exclusive. It's, it, it's, hey, if you come, great. If you don't, then you know what? You'll be judged for your rebellion against God. It's a fascinating thing as this judgment comes upon the world. The question that you have to ask yourself is this. What can I do to avoid the coming wrath of God that will take place on the face of the earth? And the Bible is very clear. It says that you, if you want to avoid the wrath of God, the judgment of God... He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. 
Saved from the judgment of God for your sins. Saved from the wrath of God that's coming upon this world that will discipline this world for its rejection of, uh, rejection of Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear over and over again. The only escape that any of us have from the judgment of God. There is no other name under heaven by which man must be saved than that of Jesus Christ our Lord. Man, and you know what? Here's the other issue that we need to deal with and that's this. What must we do to avoid the discipline of God? Very simple. Confess your sin and turn from it. Obey the word of God and you will avoid the discipline of God. Go back to Daniel 8 and we'll close. I want you to notice something. And it's important as it ties into this whole prophecy. It says, The visions of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret or write it down, for it pertains to many days in the future, which is what he did. He recorded this as God instructed. Then, listen to this. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. He was exhausted and sick for days. I believe that if you and I had one glimpse of what the tribulation period was like, is going to be like. If we had just one glimpse into hell and the judgment of God, if we had just one glimpse of what was to take place for those who reject Christ, I believe that we too would be exhausted and we would be sick for days. You see, Daniel saw what was going to happen to his people. Daniel saw what was going to happen to Babylon. Daniel saw what was going to happen to the Persians. Daniel saw what was going to happen to God's people as Antiochus rose up and destroyed them. Daniel saw all of it because God gave him privilege to see it. We also have the privilege of seeing what's going to happen. The Word of God gives us the same insight. We know one day judgment will come. We know one day that people will spend an eternity suffering in hell for rejecting Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. We know one day there's a coming world leader who are going to, who's going to come on the scene and preach peace. But three and a half years later, all hell's going to break loose on this earth. We know that. The Bible tells us that. Notice the next phrase. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. How about you? Are you carrying on the king's business? You see, prophecy is meaningless if it isn't something to instruct us so we can go about the king's business. What's the king's business? To proclaim Jesus Christ to the world. To proclaim love and forgiveness and mercy in Christ. What's the king's business? That we go about making disciples of all nations baptizing them because all authority has been given to, to Christ. And he says, go forth into all nations. Make disciples as you go. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. Are you busy going about the king's business? The question is, how do we, demonst how do we demonstrate it? How do we know that we are? By what we're doing. Do you tell others about Christ? Do you realize that some things are worth fighting for? Do you stand in the gap? Do you realize the freedom of God is worth fighting for? Do you realize the blessing that we have in being able to proclaim freely the Word of God when so many nations around the world for centuries have not even been allowed to open a Bible, to own a Bible, to have a Bible, to use a Bible, to mention the word Bible to anybody? And they were put to death, martyred for their faith? We've got the freedom to proclaim the Word of God and we put it away and we put it on our shelves and we decide we're going to entertain people and we're going to try to get people to come because we want to raise money and we want to have programs but we don't want to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. What are we here for? We're here to do the King's business. 
Daniel was shocked and stunned by everything that was to come up. But you know what? He went to work and he was excellent at what he did. And he used it as a platform to tell his co-workers about the love of God that's found in Jesus Christ. So many of us, we want to go sell everything and sit on a hill and, and wonder what's going on. Hey, you know what you're supposed to do? Get up tomorrow, use what you learn, and go share it with people around you who are looking for the truth and don't have any hope. They don't know what this world's coming to. And you have everything right here at your disposal to share it with them. Stop speculating about what's all this going to be about and all these things going to happen. You know what? We get enough information that we know we're supposed to be doing without having to try to speculate and give our opinions on stuff that God doesn't even tell us about. Let's just get busy doing what God's called us to do. Do you recognize that evil's not content to reside within limited parameters in society or even in your own life? If you're dirty before God, confess your sin, agree what you're doing is wrong, confess it and repent and turn from it. And God can use you to make a difference in this world. There is nothing better than one day to hear as we stand before our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. When he asks us how we redeem the time that he's given us here on earth. And he says to us, you did good. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You enter into the joy of your master. Daniel got up and he went about the king's business. What are you doing? Father, thank you for your word. Just thank you for the clarity of it. Just thank you for the, just how awesome it is. God, it's, it's just incredible that we can look in, in every degree and in, in, in everything that we read, see how 100% accurate your word is. And if everything you've proclaimed in the past that has come true and into fruition has taken place exactly as you said, then we have confidence and assurance that everything you tell us about our future is exactly the same. That we can, that we can bank on it, that we can have full confidence and assurance of it, that you don't want us to be ignorant, that you want to give us understanding. And we just thank you for your word. We thank you for the life of Daniel, a man who had so many things that, that you gave him privilege to see into the future that made him sick and exhausted and just tormented his soul. And yet he got back up and he went about doing the king's business. God, may we become men and women who get up today and begin to resume the task of doing what you've called us to do. And that is proclaiming the excellencies of him. Speaking of Jesus Christ who has called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. We thank you that our sins are forgiven as we believe in his sacrifice on the cross for us individually. We just thank you that everything you promised as far as uh, the, the peace of, of your relationship, the peace of God, the peace with God, that we know it's true, that we're born again, that we become uh, children of God to those who believe in your name, that Jesus said he is preparing a place for us and one day that we shall be with him, that, he's telling, that he told us that he will come back for his people that where he is, we will one day be. God, help us to be people who 100%, without hesitancy, believe in your word and are not just hearers only, but are doers who act upon it. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.